The reading is taken from Luke chapter 1, verses 5 to 25. In the days of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah of the division of Abijah, and he had a wife from the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. And they were both righteous before God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and statutes of the Lord. But they had no child, because Elizabeth was barren, and both were advanced in years. Now while he was serving as priest before God, when his division was on duty, according to the custom of the priesthood, he was chosen by lot to enter the temple of the Lord and burn incense. And the whole multitude of the people were praying outside at the hour of incense. And there appeared to him an angel of the Lord standing on the right side of the altar of incense. And Zechariah was troubled when he saw him, and fear fell upon him. But the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard, and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you shall call his name John. And you will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth, for he will be great before the Lord. And he must not drink wine or strong drink, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit, even from his mother's womb. And he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God. And he will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. And Zechariah said to the angel, How shall I know this? For I am an old man and my wife is advanced in years. And the angel answered him, I am Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God and I was sent to speak to you and to bring you this good news. And behold, you will be silent and unable to speak until the day that these things take place, because you did not believe my words, which will be fulfilled in their time. And the people were waiting for Zechariah, and they were wondering at his delay in the temple. And when he came out, he was unable to speak to them, and they realized that he had seen a vision in the temple. And he kept making signs to them and remained mute. And when his time of service was ended, he went to his home. After these days, his wife Elizabeth conceived, and for five months she kept herself hidden, saying, Thus the Lord has done for me in the days when he looked on me to take away my reproach among people. The word of the Lord. Thank you, Abby. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we praise you for the fact that you came. We praise you that you have a plan gospel, not only the first advent, Lord, but the second advent, and we long to see you face to face. I pray this morning you would be with us as we look at this scripture closely, and as we consider our lives before you this Christmas season. In your name we pray, amen. So as we look at advent, really the meaning of the word is to wait. In our present day, I think we are a people who are waiting. We're waiting for something very particular, very important, right? And we count the days. We want answers, questions we are asking. Some of us will know those answers sooner than others. Those of you that go on December 18th will know exactly what happens with Star Wars. The rest of us may wait a few more days or weeks, but the answers will come. We are a people, that was a joke, come on, laugh a little bit. We know what it means to wait. My son, Coleman, for whatever reason, is not in here, but he's our Star Wars guy, and he got us tickets on the 17th. I'm still suspicious 
of whether it's like the actual new one or some kind of weird other thing. We'll find out. But we wait, and we wait well. Yesterday we had a big game we waited for. Politics. Uh, I think every day we're looking and waiting and wondering. And, and what these things are all really pointing to, and what I want to draw our attention to as we begin the Advent season, is that we really have deeper longings in our hearts. It is very clear we are a people who long and wait for something. And yet the things we think we want, though often very, very important, Sometimes they're not important, often they are. They don't really scratch, they don't get below the surface, they don't get deep. And what we find with Zechariah is he had a longing. They were childless. And it's an amazing passage where we see the wedding together of a longing that he and Elizabeth had for a child with the redemptive purposes of God. And that's what I hope we would do this Advent season, is that we would look at the longings of our heart and see them redeemed, right, by Christ, that we would, we would see how they connect us to the eternal purposes of God, that we may see them not as sort of opposed to what God is doing, but actually pointing to what he's doing in our life and in the life in the world around us. So we're going to really pig, begin this whole Advent series, there's only four sermons, by looking at the precursor to Christ, right, the birth of John the Baptist, or at least the foretelling of it, by looking at Zechariah. And there's really two large points. The situation and the solution of Zechariah. So, let's start with the situation. There's a problem. And the problem really begins way back. We've been studying Moses. Those of you that have been coming faithfully every week, the life of Moses. We're taking a quick break. But Moses rescues his people out of Egypt. I can't miss the opportunity to recap our, our series for, next, for the uh, January season so you remember it. But remember what he's doing. He's fulfilling... The, the, predict, the prophecy or the prediction to Abraham that there's going to be a seed, singular, that will take away the sin of the world. And so as everything's unfolding in the Old Testament, through Moses, through Judges, through all the different kings, and into the era of prophets, um, what we find is it's all culminating toward the coming of the Messiah, Jesus. So there's a problem with this story. Jesus hasn't come yet. In fact, There's been silence for over 400 years. There's another problem Luke tells us about right at the beginning. In the days of Herod, king of Judea. Well, we had a problem there. We had Roman rule. We had a foreign rule, and that was not what they needed. That was not good. So there was another problem politically. And, of course, we know right then, if we read in verse 7, but they had no child, talking about Zechariah and Elizabeth, because she was barren. Another problem. These problems are culminating at the time of, of the advent. And for Zechariah, it was building up to this point where he is now appointed to be the priest to, to, to go into the holy place. And the question before we jump into what, what we're going to see with what he does is this. What are you longing for? Like, do you ever just stop? I mean, how many, I mean, we long, right? We yearn. We want things. It's, it's, it's so common that we're like, it's like water to a fish. What are the things you think will complete you? What are the things you're waiting for? Right? I, I, I know it's risky, um, but yesterday I'm downtown. I am wearing my OU jersey at the time, or my OU sweatshirt that's really old. And I'm sitting in the office working on a sermon, thinking if I can just go to the office, 
I could focus for a couple of hours. I can block it out. Well, guess what I'm hearing outside? Revelry, excitement, and I wanted to go out and enjoy it. It's, we are all people who are worshipful. We're excited. We, want, we long for things, right? But those things rarely satisfy. Um, sometimes I think it's worse to win a game. I, I know I'm walking on hallowed ground. Sometimes it's almost worse to win the game because the next morning you go, so what? You know? That's what, that didn't solve anything. We long for something deeper. And as we move into this season and into this sermon, I would ask you to really begin to consider what it is you're longing for. The outward thing, but then starting to dig deeper. What is it underneath that you're after? So we have this problem. This is the situation we're discussing, but there's also the process to deal with the problem. God's sovereignty is on major display because Zechariah is one, he is one of, who I don't know that they even know how many each division had, but there were 24 division of priests, okay? And each division had a lot of priests in that division. So each division would be given two weeks a year. So for two weeks, your particular division would get to have access to the holy place in the tavern, in the temple. Not the holiest of holies, where only the high priest would go once a year on the Day of Atonement, but the holy place just before it. And if you're on your two-week stint, there were going to be obviously 14 different priests, unless unless it was actually two priests, which is thought possible for 24. But that was still very unlikely that you would ever have. Did I do the wrong 28? Thank you. I appreciate anybody that wants to help me correct my numbers. 28. So... It was very unlikely. Most one commentator said for for Aaron, or excuse me, for Zechariah, to be selected by lot for this duty would be like the apex of his priestly career. This would be the first time he did it, and probably the only time he got to do this. So, God's sovereignty is all over the place with him even being called to go in to this process. And perhaps we can picture the scene of Zechariah getting to go in and burn the incense with anticipation and awe, and he's walking past, he puts on the priestly robe, right, which represents the purity of, of, his, of his position, and he walks through the temple courts, passing by the multitudes of people who are praying, praying for something huge, praying for something new, right? And as he's passing by, he enters into this room he's never been before, he's only heard of, and it has these furnishings that we, we've read in the Old Testament, right? Which is the only testament they have. You had uh, on the left would be the golden lampstand of life flickering in the darkness. On the right would be the table of bread. And in front of him, right up against the, the, the screen to the holiest of holies, or the, um, the curtain, excuse me, would be this altar of incense which he was going to light. This was the process. This is what he was doing. And he was totally focused, right? He's... He's honed in on what he's doing. And he gets there, and he begins the process of lighting incense. And what we find is this. Just think about it for a minute. On planet Earth, doesn't that sound amazing when I say that in the Earth? This would be the one person in the one place where he should have probably thought, this is big. Something huge is going to happen. And when the angel shows up, who we later find out is Gabriel, he is completely stunned, completely shocked. He's afraid. In fact, what we're doing in this Advent series is we're choosing four, uh, four passages where angels show up proclaiming the Advent. 
And so here we have Zechariah completely shocked. And before I go in any further, I'm just going to bring it back to you and I. Are we pra- you take these longings, you take the things you want, and you pray for them. Are we even doing that? The multitudes of people, the passage tells us that are praying. Are we praying for God's redemption? Are we longing for him to enter into our lives? And what's amazing to me, and what I love about this passage, and we're going to talk about it more in a little bit, is that here's the one person who should have been like, there you are. I expected you right there. Is it Gabriel? I thought it would be. No, he's completely shocked. He's completely in fear. So are we expectant to be visited this season by the Father, by the Spirit, by anything other than just our own processes, our own practices, our own religious duties? So let's move into the solution then. What does the angel say to him? The angel says, in verse 13, Do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard, and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you shall call his name John. And you will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth. Now, Zechariah, when he left that morning, Apex of his career, his wife, no doubt, and he are talking. He's hoping, I hope he's planning on praying. They're probably discussing it. You wonder, did she say, would you pray? When you get in there, would you just pray that maybe God would answer this prayer? Scholars or biblical commentators are not sure if, if this allusion to his prayer meant in the time, in that place, did he pray for a child? Or was it something he had prayed years before? But he goes in and he prays for a child. And what's amazing about this, 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 this answer to prayer, this proclamation of a birth of John, is that it weds together, as I've already alluded to, a longing of, of Elizabeth and, and Zechariah for a child with redemptive history. And I think that's a, that really has to become the lesson of this passage is that where we go wrong, I believe, is when our longings have nothing to do with God. They have nothing to do with Jesus. They have nothing to do with redemption. They're completely and utterly for ourselves. Now, let me be clear. It's very possible to long for a child selfishly. But it's also very possible to long for a child redemptively. What's amazing is, when you hear the way that the angel describes what John was going to be like, it's not what you and I might think we want. He's going to be a baseball player. And a letter in three sports. It's going to be academic, all-star, whatever. It's things that might make you wince a little bit. Everybody's going to be joyful, right? Giving gladness. He's going to be a forerunner. The actual, the, the statement that he's going to not drink strong wine, a strong drink, is rever- referring to number six, the Nazarene, or the Nazarite vow, right? Spoken to Moses that said, there would be people who would take these vows and they would not cut their hair and they would not drink strong drink. Now some scholars are not sure that's exactly what's going on there, but more than likely it's pointing to that, that he's going to be set apart and special. But then there's even more. Look at verse 17. Verses 16 and 17. He will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God. And he will, be, he will go before him, referring of course you know now to Jesus, in spirit and power of Elijah, to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children 
and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. And all he wanted was a, a little boat, a little baby. You know, he just wanted a son, right? Or did he? Now, well, you know immediately what Zechariah's mind had to go to is Malachi 4.5. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And he will turn the hearts of fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers. Right there, in that moment, with the angel proclaiming who would be his son, Zechariah is now realizing the last book, not that he thought this way, but this is what we know, the last book of the Old Testament, Malachi, there's been silence for 400 years. This is the first uttered prophecy that we know of since then, and he's telling Zechariah, you're going to have a son, and he's going to be that person. He's going to be the forerunner. He's going to be the one pointing to the one. And so right there with Zechariah, you have this beautiful wedding together of his longings with redemption. What does that look like for us? I mean, I, as parents, I just think we live in a culture where we want our kids to have everything and we love them, but I, I wonder how often, I know we struggle with this, are we praying that our kids would sacrifice, would grow up? I remember our pastor at Heritage, Chuck Garrett, would pray at every baptism that that child might be a missionary overseas. And I think sometimes the parents winced. How about just like an accountant, you know? Something, no offense to accountants, beautiful profession. But just something that's not risky, that's not dangerous. I think for us, we have these desires and longings, but we haven't wedded them to Christ. And that would be the encouragement from this passage, that we would take our longings and say, Jesus, I, I, first of all, is this even from you? Is this even something I should long for? But then if so, how can I long in the way that would glorify you or bring glory to your purposes, to your desires, to what you're doing redemptively? But let's now focus our final moments on the response of Zechariah, because that's what I'm drawn to. I love when you can get some psychology and some personal uh, personality in the Bible. Luke could have easily jumped from verse 17 to 26, 24, excuse me, but he gives us this response right there in the middle. And Zechariah said to the angel, How shall I know this? For I am an old man, and my wife is advanced in years. Okay. That's kind of funny. Now, you might not think that's funny. It may not be as funny as other things you're prone to laugh at. But it's funny, because he was just told, Your son is the guy that was prophesied about in Malachi 4.5, whether or not it was called 4.5 or not, Zechariah hears all that and goes, wait a minute, you're telling me my wife and I are going to be able to procreate? Like, that's all he could think about. There's some humor in that. I just can't go into detail. Um, they're old. It's been a long time. That's all he could think about. He, he was filled with unbelief. And listen to what the angel says. I am Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God, and I was sent to speak to you and to bring you this good news. Now, Gabriel appears in the Scriptures in four different places. In the la before this, he was in Daniel in two different places, in verse 8, 16 in Daniel, and verses 9, 21. And in 9, 21, it says, While I was speaking in prayer, that's Daniel, the man Gabriel, whom I had seen in the vision earlier, came to me in swift flight at the time of the evening sacrifice. And so you have this connection to the prophecies of Daniel 
And so can you imagine Zechariah who just who sees this angel and sort of calls him like, how is this going to even happen? I don't believe you. And immediately he says, I'm Gabriel. Like, I'm real. I'm the one. You're, you're questioning me. I was, I was in the Old Testament. I'm the guy, you know, big time information, news, and it just would create shivering. And listen to what one, one author says this. Why this unbelief? He says, a priest who cannot believe the authoritative word of an angel of God because he cannot accept the possibility of divine intervention to reverse the decay of nature has lost faith in the basic principles of redemption. Huh? That's what you're all thinking right now, I can tell. Everyone's like, all right, we were up late watching something and now we're tired and we're just reading lots of things. Here's what that guy is saying. This is Zechariah's moment for redemption. And he can't get past the idea that he and his wife are going to have a little baby. It's a miracle that they're going to have a baby. But the bigger miracle is that God is redeeming the world. And he's going to use Zechariah's longing to reach people. Do you hear that unbelief? I, I remember being bothered when I would read things in the Bible uh, even in seminary and even later, I still get bothered by it. And maybe you were bothered by it too. Let me read it to you now. And we'll see if you're bothered by this. Here we are. Just a, here's the setup. We're at Grace. right? I'm not the original pastor, but Jonathan Dorse and myself preach, I think, the same gospel. You know, cheer up. What? You're worse than you think, right? You're you wretched sinner. And then you come to Luke chapter 1 and you have Zechariah and Elizabeth were both righteous before God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and statutes of the Lord. Does that bother you? They're perfect? They're sinless? How, how would I even stand up to these people? Well, they're not. They're justified. There's a difference. They're not sinless. And you and I, if we are in Christ, we are justified in Christ. Legally righteous. It's true of you. Right? Blameless. Say that about yourself as you pray. As you have your quiet times, which we ought to have. We open Scripture and we feel guilty. I am blameless because of Jesus. I am righteous because of what Christ has done. But this is unbelief. And this is the point. Zechariah is blameless. He's righteous. But he's also a sinner. And he sinned. He didn't believe Gabriel. He didn't believe God sent this messenger into this situation to wake him up from his duty. And who knows what he was probably thinking about. Like, hey, this is real. And the God of the universe has met you right now in the holy places to tell you this prophecy. All you have to do is believe it. And he doesn't believe it. And so he's rendered speechless. Do you believe or do you struggle with unbelief? And of course, I think this is what I love about this passage. We are unbelievers. We're just like him. We are just as prone to questioning. Right? We have all the evidence God has given us. And if you think he has a special thing to see Zechariah or to see the angel, we have heard of Christ. He's been proclaimed to us. Right? Think of Galatians 3. Oh, you foolish Galatians who have bewitched you. Before your very eyes, Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. They never saw any of that. But they had heard of it and they believed. And they had received the Holy Spirit. Zechariah had not received the Holy Spirit. We have. And yet we don't believe. We're justified 
but we struggle with unbelief. And as we move into this time of Advent, I'm hoping to see awakening in our lives, in my life, in your life, where we begin to actually go, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. Will you wake me up? Will you show me the beauty of your gospel? Can it change me? The other day, I, I see the clip of an SNL clip, and everybody I've asked, have you seen the clip? They've all seen the clip. So if you haven't seen it, you're in the minority. It's the clip from Saturday Night Live where they all gather around the Thanksgiving table. The Adele clip, anybody? Raise your hand if you've seen this. Okay, Google it. It's hilarious. They're all sitting there, and it's clean, mostly. They're sitting there around the table. It's Thanksgiving. And they begin to have their debates, you know, about, like, ISIS, and just all the typical family. I don't know if that's typical. And the little girl is sitting there, and she's, like, getting very uncomfortable around the tension, and she walks over to the tape player. It looked like a tape player, but I think it should have been a CD player. It hits play, and then the Adele hello song. Now, who's heard a hello? Raise your hand if you've heard hello. Come on. It's, like, the number one downloaded song of all time, which dates back to, like, 05 or something. It's still... So it's like it starts off like Lionel Richie's hello, but then it gets really a lot better. And so as they're fighting, she pushes the button, and they all stop. And it's just like they begin to act like Adele. And then all, for some reason, I guess the grandparents come in, and the song stops, and they start talking. Well, now the grandparents are bringing in their sin of like, I was at the airport, and I saw, you know, I won't say all the things they said, but ridiculing other people. And, and all of a sudden, there's more fighting, and then the song goes on again. But now it's even more advanced. I think they all have like a blonde wig now and fingernails. They started to look like Adele. And it's really kind of funny. And then they start fighting again because the pies were ready. And the ding went off, and they're back out of their, out of their dream. And then finally, the, she hits the last time, and they're all in the wind with the leaves, like the, like the actual video. And the girl that actually looks like Adele has like stands out there, and she's singing, and they're just belting out hello, and then what's really funny, she blows away and rolls down into the, the creek. It's hysterical. You've got to see this. And you're sitting there going, did he have any reason to bring this up? I believe that we need to be hitting that button in our lives. What is the button? Is it really hello? No, it's horrible. You get so sick of the song, it does nothing for you. But it's the gospel. I mean, what, 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 what that humor is pointing to, of course, it's slightly ridiculing the song because it's like, you know, it makes you feel like everything's amazing and emotional and it's, this, it's kind of a silly song when you hear the lyrics. But there's something deeper, right? An answer that's far greater than that song we'll ever get to, but it's pointing to. And it's the fact that there is something that can rescue us. And it's the gospel. And so when I am in a moment of, of whether I'm fighting with somebody else or just struggling and I'm cranky, I'm angry, I'm depressed, life is hard, we need to push that button and run to the gospel. And I really appreciate what Doug was saying about the means of grace because it's critical. The boring, old means of grace. What do you do? You go to Scripture. I mean, I want to ask you guys to think about this. This holiday season, as you move into Advent, everyone is going to tell you, and you'll, you'll say, it's a lonely time of year. Right? A lot of our problems surface. There seems to be more fighting. We're busy. So a season that should be really happy and, and, and filled with glee is often the darkest time of year for people. Not everybody. I'm not trying to be totally pessimistic. Just partially. But we go to Christ. And I would encourage you in this season to go to your scriptures 
and read them. I want to get very practical. If you haven't been reading your Bible, start tomorrow. Pick a verse that you already love, that you know very, very well. Psalm 23, the book of John, Romans 5, 6, or 7, or 8, or 9. Pick a, pick a place, something that doesn't shock you at the beginning, and just begin to read and pray, because what the Scriptures teach us is that if you have the Holy Spirit, He will illumine the Scriptures for you. It may not be the first reading. You may have to read it a few times. But it will only happen if you bring yourself to the Scripture. And here's what I mean, repent. If we believe Christ is the one, the Spirit is the one that causes this repentance. But we come before the Scripture, we start to read it, and we start to go, I've been running. I've been longing for something else. I've been listening to another song. And so I would encourage you, if you aren't reading Scripture, to spend time, and if you are, to spend that time as well. But not just going through the motions, but praying and reading the Scripture that the Spirit would open your eyes to see the beauty of the Gospel. And so we have Zechariah being told that he's going to have a son. He gets what he wants. Right? He wasn't told that his son was going to be weird. And he was weird. John the Baptist was weird. I'm just telling you. He ate locusts and honey. That was his diet. And he wore camel fur and he grew his hair out and went out to the desert. I mean, that's not the story most of us want, right, for our kids. Ironically, unlike Jesus, his family didn't go try to pull him back. They understood what he was called to do. And worse than that is he was, his life ended early. And I, I have a feeling they probably knew that. And like Hannah in the Old Testament with Samuel, they understood this fulfillment of their longing was not for them, but was for God. Right? And of course, God sent his son, Jesus, the great, the great high priest, to come and live and die for you. And we are bored. And we just look at him and go, I don't really long for anything he's got. We get all swept up with the things around us. And what we're not realizing is all of those things are really pointing to him. Have you connected where your heart goes? to the only one that can meet your deepest need, Jesus. Because he will satisfy you more than you'll ever know.